Most of you know me, but for those of you who don't, I'm Carol, and I'm the worship and arts pastor here at Oasis. Usually you see me up here using a different voice, but today I'm talking. Um, So yeah, I'm so happy. It's my pleasure to work every day with our amazing staff and volunteers, the tech, arts, production, planning teams, and uh, the communications. It's just amazing, Um, and, and it constantly blows my mind in a really great way. Um, we're in our series called Good News with Mark the Evangelist. How many of you have been enjoying the series, Good News? I could use some good news, right? I actually have some good news. I wanted to tell you, in case you don't have social media, we're actually expecting our second baby. <laughs> so excited. This is, our, this is our baby, Ander. He's going to be a big brother. He's very excited. He has no idea what's coming. <laughs> Oh, he'll soon find out. Okay, so we're in our, our series, Good News, um, and this is the sixth week of the series. Over the past six weeks, we've been looking in depth at the Gospel of Mark and the story of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. It's been an amazing time. We talked about um, trading our fear for faith. We'll talk a little bit more about that today, actually. Um, we've talked about carrying one another's mat, bearing one another's burdens, being roof crashers, people who kind of get in there for our friends uh, when they don't have the strength to do it themselves. It's been a really great series. If you missed any of the weeks in the series, I would just encourage you to go to oasischurch.org slash listen. There's a, there's a link to our podcast, and you can listen to all the messages there. Um, it's a great resource, and if you missed anything, you can kind of catch up there. Oasis Church. I heard somebody saying, whispering, oasischurch.org slash listen. You can get, get it there or on iTunes. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a great resource. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the cost of fear today as well. And, um, but let's first catch up to where Jesus is at in this story. I want to go through a little timeline here. Um, last week, Phil talked about Jesus healing the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus' daughter. So... That's kind of where we're at in the story. Jesus is performing miracles. He has kind of a public ministry. He's going around. He's going out, reaching out to people in need, kind of searching for people who have need and um, healing them and providing for them. Um, After this, Mark says he left that place where he left Jairus' daughter and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astounded. They said, Where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What deeds of power are being done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And that's Mark chapter six, verse one through three. So his hometown, he goes to his hometown after healing these two women and his hometown isn't super welcoming. They actually reject him in the synagogue. They, uh, they say, who is this? Isn't this the son of Mary? Which is kind of a thinly veiled little nod at his illegitimacy. Usually in that time, they'd say son of Joseph, right? So they say, who is this? Isn't this the son of Mary? Because we don't know who his daddy is, right? So that's kind of like the welcome that he receives when he gets there. Um, So Jesus said, surely prophets are not without honor except in their hometown and among their own kid and in their own house. And it says he could do no mighty work there. He only healed a few people and marveled at their unbelief. 
So it's not a good time. It's not a good time when Jesus goes home, right? Um, has anyone ever heard the phrase familiarity breeds contempt? Yeah, so there's a little of that going on here, I think. I think the Pharisees and the people in the synagogue and the people in Jesus' hometown feel like they know too much. You know, they know too much about Jesus to buy it. And so they're here and they're saying, who is this guy? What is he really going to do for us? I mean, we grew up with this guy, right? This is Jesus. I mean, he, he kind of... He kind of didn't know who his dad was. Joseph was nice, adopted him, and blah, blah, blah. So they have this whole narrative in their mind that keeps them from knowing Jesus. I'm going to say that again. They know things about Jesus that keep them from knowing Jesus. That's good, right? I think we all, we all kind of experience that in our lives things that we know about each other that kind of prevent us from showing love. There's a big lesson there that we can learn. Um, This is actually, this is really interesting. This is the last time we read about Jesus stepping foot in a synagogue, in church. (laughs) Jesus doesn't go back to church in the story. He may have, he very well may have, but this is the last time we read about him going there. So if you've ever been hurt by the church, if you're sitting here and you've been hurt by the church, first off, thanks for coming back. Uh, Second off, you're in good company. Jesus got burned on this day, you know? So we don't really read about him going back. Anyway, so then in verse 7, this is kind of the beginning. Last week, Phil mentioned that Mark uses these literary devices called Markin sandwiches. Do you remember that? This is going to be a real chatty thing, so go ahead and speak up. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so he's, he uses these things called Markin sandwiches, which are kind of like a story and then another weird, unrelated story and then a little bit of a, like a follow-up to the first part. You know what I mean? So here's the beginning of a Markin sandwich. It says, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples. He sends them two by two. And he gives them authority over unclean spirits. So instead of going out himself at this point, because he's just had this huge rejection. And I'm sure in the meantime, he's performing miracles and all that, whatever. But I'm not, I'm not saying anything about what Jesus is doing, but he sends out the 12 disciples, gives them authority over unclean spirits, and they do great and mighty works in, in God's name. So that's the first slice of bread on our sandwich. And then in verse 14, there's this like, weird story kind of wedged in there about Herod and it's like a flashback like he's not recounting the story but Herod hears about the work that the disciples are doing and he says this must be John who I beheaded (gasps) like and that's the first time we hear that John was beheaded in that way it's Herod remembering that John was beheaded He says, surely this is John the Baptist whom I beheaded. And that was at the request of Herodias' daughter. We'll talk about that later in the story. But it's in this context, actually, that the idea of resurrection enters Mark's gospel for the first time. This is the first mention of the idea of resurrection. Is actually, he thinks John the Baptist has come back to life and is kind of causing these problems, really, for her. Um, And so the second slice of that sandwich is that the 12 return. So Jesus sends them out. Herod has this weird flashback. And then they return to Jesus and tell him about the work that they did. 
right? And that's the sandwich. Then Jesus suggests, um, Jesus obviously hears that, Mark, that John was beheaded and suggests that they go away for a little while. They're sad, they're down. They've just been back from a, from a long time working. And uh, he suggests that they go away on a boat, they go to a deserted place uh, for some rest. They're met on the shore, so people here, people have heard that they're going. They're pretty popular at this point. Jesus is really popular at this point. The disciples have been doing all these miracles. People hear that they're going to a deserted place. They meet them there. They, they actually go ahead of them, and they're there when they arrive on the shore. And Jesus feels compassion toward them. He performs this miracle of feeding the 5,000, and after he performs the miracle, he sends the disciples away again on a boat and stays until all the people leave. They actually want to force him to become king, which is pretty, a pretty normal thread through the book. It's like a pretty normal thread through the narrative here. They want to force him to be king, so he escapes up to a mountain. Anyway, so that's kind of where we're at in this story. We're at the story. Jesus goes to his hometown. Herod remembers this weird story. Then Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? Uh, so now that we've caught up, I want to talk to you today about a tale of two feasts. Okay? That's what we're going to call it, tale of two feasts. Everybody good? Very good. Okay. The first feast we're going to talk about is Herod's birthday banquet. The text here is kind of long, but I really want to give you an idea of what's going on in the story. So just read along. We'll read together. King Herod heard of the disciples' ministry for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead, and for this reason these powers are at work in him. But others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. We'll talk about that later. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what should I ask for? And she replied, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She added the platter part. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. I'm going to read that part again. The king was deeply grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for his guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent a soldier of the guard with orders to bring John's head, and he went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. And when the girl gave it to her mother... Uh, then the girl gave it to her mother, and when John's disciples heard about it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Does that sound familiar? When your disciples heard about it, they came and took your body and put it in a tomb. So this is the instance in which we hear Herod mention 
resurrection for the first time. So there's a lot of foreshadowing in the literature here. And I think that's why this sandwich is kind of placed here in the middle of this text. Um, let's talk a little bit about Herod for a minute. Because when his father Herod the Great died, he became a tetrarch, which is, it just means four. Tetra means four. And so he was a, one of four rulers. It was him and his two brothers and a sister. And they split up the kingdom of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great actually had reported to the emperor anyway. So these four rulers, Herod Antipas is the one we're talking about today, and his siblings split up the kingdom of their father, and they all ruled over different parts of it. And Jesus would have lived and done his ministry in Herod Antipas' region. And um, John would have actually been doing his ministry there as well. Um, Herod wanted to be king so badly, the Roman emperor Caligula actually eventually had him exiled to Gaul. Herod publicly touts himself a king very often, like in the text when he tells the girl, the girl who was dancing for them, he says, whatever you ask me, I will give you even half of my kingdom, which is kind of like a quarter of a piece of the kingdom that they live in that's not, that he's not actually the king of. Do you know what I'm saying? So he's that kind of guy, if that's like painting a picture for you. Um, Herod spent most of his time in power, trying to keep the power he was given. Power is such a strange thing, right? I mean, a lot of times we think of people who are rich and powerful and think, what do they have to worry about, you know? Like, what do they struggle with? What do they have to think about day to day? What are they, what are they concerned with? They have people to do things for them. They have plenty, plenty. They have plenty. But the problem is that the more power you have, the more you have to lose. The higher you get to the top, heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? The higher you get to the top, the more you see that there's only one direction for, you, for things to change for you, right? So here's a quote from William Platcher, who's a, a theologian that I was reading this week. He says, it is an odd fact that the motives of the wealthiest and most powerful so often involve an element of fear. Fear of losing what they have, fear of embarrassment, fear that someone will see through their mask of importance to the nervous human being they know lies within. That's deep. Here's another one from Reinhold Niebuhr, who's another theologian. He says, there's no level of greatness and power in which the lash of fear is not at least one strand in the whip of ambition. Okay, so I'm going to leave it there for a second. I'm going to talk about the second feast in our story. So we're talking about a tale of two feasts, right? So you got Herod's birthday feast, which doesn't actually mention any food. And then you've got uh, the second feast. We're going to read that now. So that's from Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 44. Read along with me. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him, this is them returning from him commissioning them, gathered around Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away to the boat to a deserted place. They went away in a boat to a deserted place by themselves. And now many, of, many saw them going and recognizing them. 
And they hurried there on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. And as he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Other gospels mention that he does healings at this point. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is very late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy something for themselves to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, are we to go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves have you? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. And then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And all ate and were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who had eaten the loaves numbered 5,000 men. 5,000 men. So you can, you can comfortably assume that these men were not alone and had families with them. And so it would be reasonable and probably like lowballing it to try to say that, that there were probably close to 15,000 people there at the end of the day when Jesus was teaching. That's amazing. 15,000. That's, that's incredible. This is one of the few stories that's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. So this story had a really big impact on the disciples and how they reacted is amazing. We're going to talk more about that. And I think one of the things to note is that people saw Jesus as a leader in that day. People saw Jesus as a really interesting, different kind of leader. And I think that in their frustration or in their angst or their day-to-day kind of trouble, they like different, right? Sometimes when things aren't going the way you want them to go, different looks good. Um, So Jesus has moved to intervene in like kind of a vacuum of leadership. He says that he had compassion on them because they looked like sheep without a shepherd. This is a phrase that's mentioned a lot of times in the Old Testament. It's a phrase um, that's really powerful in this sense. Like Jesus was moved to provide for them. He was moved to care for them because they were in need. Mark chapter 6 says, Then he ordered them to get all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. So Jesus didn't say, sit them down in groups of hundreds and fifties on the green grass. Right? It says, he said, sit them down in groups on the green grass. And they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. These are groups that would have been used in like uh, census counting. Like the only reasons they counted people, I was talking to Robbie about this earlier this week. The only reasons they counted people in those days were um, for taxes or for the military. So they saw Jesus as a leader. They organized themselves in, themselves in ranks when he, when he spoke a word, right? We see a little bit of that in this text. 
In John's account, Jesus has to escape at the end of the story because people want to take him and make him king by force. It says, let us go and take him and make him king by force. (laughs) That's what the people are saying. So this isn't something that Jesus is recruiting for. You know what I mean? He's recruiting, but he's not recruiting for a military or to become king. You know what I mean? So here's what I want to talk about. These two feasts, to me in the story, because this Markin sandwich is so weird and out of place, I really feel like these two feasts are representing two kingdoms. We really get a snapshot of two different kinds of kingdoms in the text. The first is the kingdom of Herod. And we see here that the kingdom of Herod equals power plus fear. Herod is afraid of John the Baptist. He's just straight up afraid. It says it in the text. He's afraid of losing face. He wants to save face in front of people because he said, I'll give you anything, even up to half my kingdom. He's living in fear of what people will think if he doesn't keep his word, if he doesn't come through on promises or threats that he makes. You know what I mean? So in Herod's story, the only thing being served at his feast is the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's really the only thing mentioned being served there. And in Jesus' story, people ate and had their fill. So the second kingdom is the kingdom of God. Jesus is representing the kingdom of God, which is this display of power coupled with love that results in this act of miraculous compassion and new creation, right? That's a big contrast here in the story. In Jesus' story, the food is served in abundance and people eat their fill of it. Fish and bread. And this would have been a luxury for most people listening to Jesus to eat until they were full. So the point I want to make today is that fear-based kingdoms exercise the power of destruction and love-based kingdoms exercise the power of new creation. And we see this over and over in our world, in the text, in the Bible. We see kingdoms that are ruled with fear and power, great power. And it amounts to unbelievable destruction. If you think of it in your own life, you're not a king or a queen, but you have power. You have, you have uh, authority, right, in your life in some area. And there's not an infinite amount of resources that we work with day to day in our, in our own minds. There's not, we don't usually work with an infinite amount of resources. So something has to be taken from one place, destroyed, or taken from someone and given to another person. But in the kingdom of God, the resources aren't like that. It's infinite resources. It's something from nothing. It's 15,000 people eating five loaves of bread. And it doesn't make any sense. That's fine. You can laugh at that. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. It's sight for blind eyes. It's give away all you have. It's don't take anything with you. When Jesus commissions the disciples, he sends them two by two. And he says, go to a house. And if they receive you, eat well, do, uh, do well by them. If they don't receive you well, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony to that place and walk to the next place, but don't take anything with you. 
everything you need, you'll find on your way. Because you're operating in my kingdom, right? And my resources are not limited. You have no need. I am the great shepherd. I'm the provider for you, right? So Jesus' way is the better way. Of these two kingdoms, the Jesus way is the better way. Jesus is constantly showing us a better way to live. And there are these constant contrasts in the text of one way to do things and then Jesus' way to do things. And it may seem unorthodox. It may make people upset. But it's the better way. It's the, it's the right way. Right? Right? Great. So I want to talk about Jesus. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I want to talk about Jesus is the better way. Um, this is an idea I got from Chris Green. Chris Green's new to our congregation, but he's a theologian. He's from, he just moved here from Cleveland, Tennessee. I follow him on Twitter. Anybody got Twitter? You should follow Chris Green. Um, he's been doing these tweets that are like, Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Elijah. And they're really deep. They're really good. I wanted to use a little of that today. I asked him. He said, it's fine. Um, I wanted to use a little bit of that today just so we can contrast these two kingdoms. Because a lot of times we think of these, these guys that I'm going to mention as kingdom guys. And eventually their story is redeemed to be that. But they start, all of their stories kind of start in this place, this small place. And they have this shift, right? That doesn't happen with Jesus. Jesus is the better way. So here we, I'm going to start with David. Jesus is the better David. David was a shepherd. We have the shepherd illusion here in the text with the feeding of the 5,000. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. David was a king. People wanted Jesus to be king. He is a king. He's our king. Amen. Uh, Psalm 23, which we read for the call to worship. In Psalm 23, Jesus is the ultimate provider. He makes me lie down in green grass. He leads me beside still waters. He sets a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I don't have to respond in violence. I just eat the meal. Right? It's so good. It's beautiful. In the lectionary, there's something called the Revised Common Lectionary that the, the church uses, that like Big C Church kind of uses to go through the, the church calendar, the liturgical calendar. And on the day that this text is used, the feeding of the 5,000 text, they also use a text, it's coupled with the text from Jeremiah 23 that says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them and they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. The days are surely coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land, and in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety, and the name by which he will be called is the Lord is our righteousness. Amen. Jesus is the better David. Next, I want to talk about Jesus is the better Elisha. Listen to this story from 2 Kings. It may sound familiar. It says, a man came from Baal Shalisha, 
bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. And the servant said, how can I set 20 loaves before a hundred? And Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. And then he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. So there's all this illusion from the Old Testament to the New. Jesus fulfilling prophecies, but in a better way. There's 20 loaves and there's this miracle that happens with Elisha. Um, but one thing about David and Elisha and Moses we're going to talk about in a minute is that uh, one thing that they have in their stories that Jesus doesn't have is, like I said, that shift that happens. They started small. Like David murders the husband of a woman he wants. And the text says, this displeases the Lord. David was afraid. He got her pregnant. He was afraid. He was ashamed. He wanted her for himself. He was self-serving. And out of that fear came violence. Right? We all know that story. Elisha, there's a there's a crazy story in the Old Testament about the bears. Do you guys know this story? Let me tell it to you really quickly. Elisha's walking down the road. Elisha's older at this point. He's going a little thin on the, on the top. His hair is thinning. He's bald. 42 kids. It says that he comes across this group of youths on the road who start bullying him. <laughs> being bald um he doesn't like it it says he curses them in the name of God and two bears come out of the woods and tear them that is a crazy story that's insane. That's an insane story. Do you understand what I said so Elisha's walking down the street he gets bullied by these youths and calls the curses them with the wrath of God and these two bears come out and murder them because he's being bullied he curses 42 kids because he's being bullied right like that seems a little it seems a little extreme that's right anyway so Elisha was self-concerned in that moment I would say I would say that if he's walking in the kingdom of love, he's like, yes, I'm bald and beautiful. This is fine. God bless, kids. Go back to school. What are you doing here? Um, and he, he just goes on his merry way. But instead, he's like, I curse you in the name of God. It's a lot. It's too much. It's not the right reaction for Elisha to have, right? I don't think it is. So Chris Green, who this is his whole idea, Chris Green says about Elisha, he says, Jesus is the better Elisha who not only receives the double portion of the prophet's anointing, but is given the anointing spirit himself without measure. Amen. That's really good. Okay, let's talk about Moses. Jesus is a better Moses. Moses also started as a shepherd. When he grows up, he asks the Lord to appoint a successor so that his people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Moses says that. 
he has this story where he leads the people of God through the wilderness and they need food. And he prays and God sends manna from heaven. And it's amazing, it's a miracle. God provides bread for people in the wilderness. But Moses doesn't provide bread for people in the wilderness. God provides bread in the wilderness. In Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, it says, Someone better than Moses. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus had been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. And Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So what is the hope in which we glory? Why is Jesus the better Moses? Why is Jesus the better David? Why is Jesus the better Elisha? Paul talks about this hope in Romans chapter five. He says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Amen. Through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us and we're given access to that Holy Spirit through Jesus. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is not only the better way. He's the only way that we have access to that spirit of love and compassion and quelling those urges for violence or maybe not even violence. I mean, maybe you're not walking around saying off with their heads. But we all have influence. We all have uh, sway over our everyday lives. We make choices. Our broken, fallen human nature makes us way more likely to respond in, to fear in violence. And usually it's not violence against another human, like physical violence. You're like maybe saying, well, I don't go around cutting people's heads off. I don't go around slapping my kids. I don't go around slapping my wife or husband. But usually it's self-defense that causes harm. Maybe it's truthful words not spoken in love. My husband always tells me, the truth without love is violence. Which is true, right? But I, I'm guilty of it, so it's hard for me to hear. Um, but it's true. Maybe it's truthful words, not spoken in love. Maybe you're telling the truth, but that truth won't do any good for the person you're telling it to. It only does good for you, and you're selfish, like me. The kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdom of earth. Jesus spent his life and ministry trying to communicate a better way. Listen to this. When we walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and choose to live in the kingdom of God, 
we can choose to respond in love and compassion in the face of fear. We can turn our fear to faith, like Phil said last week. This is the change. This is the shift. Like the quote we read earlier says, we can choose the better way without fear of loss or embarrassment or that someone will see through our mask of self-importance. When we walk in the power given to us by Jesus of the Holy Spirit, we have access to react as though we live in the kingdom of God, which we do. Right here on earth, surrounded by all different kinds of kingdoms. Everybody has their own kingdom that they want to just maintain and build their fence and like get a little more, get a little more here, get a little more there, take some from this person, give it to that person because I like them. We don't operate that way here. We're called to a different way. We're called to live in the kingdom of power plus love, which equals compassion. Amen? We're going to participate in that second feast in just a minute, but let me just say a word of prayer for us. God, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for the example that we have in Jesus to walk a better way. Would you open our hearts now to the work of your Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit, would you guide us day by day? Would you help us to start each day saying, Holy Spirit, what would you have us how would you have us react today? We're going to experience feelings of fear. We're going to experience feelings of insecurity. Holy Spirit, would you help us react instead of in self-defense or in violence with love and compassion? In Jesus' name.